So I'm going to uh, welcome everyone this morning to our asthma grand rounds. I'm Chris Fanton and delighted that you're joining us for the first of our 2022-2023 season. And we have a very timely and uh, interesting talk ahead. I just want to remind you, please, uh, if I can figure out how to advance my slides, that um, we welcome your questions. The best is if you would text them. Uh, to me at 617-513-6043. Just write that number down if you would. And at the end of the talk, submit any questions that you'd like for our speaker today. And then if you're interested in CME credit uh, via email, send me your name degree and I'll have your email address, cfanta at partners.org. And through Harvard Medical School, you'll be assigned uh, a, a, the CME credit. And uh, we are optimistic that you will have no technical problems, but we do have rapid responders at BWH Webcast Troubleshooting at Partners.org. BWH Webcast Troubleshooting at Partners.org. Thank you. So today, it's a great pleasure to introduce Dr. Elliot Israel, known, I think, to most of you. But uh, he is an allergist, pulmonologist, and intensivist. He uh, directs the Asthma Research Center at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. He um, is co-director of the Severe Asthma Program at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and he is professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and in particular, the Symboli Family Distinguished Chair in Asthma Research at Harvard Medical School. And we're absolutely delighted to have him uh, to present uh, his work on patient-activated reliever-triggered inhaled corticosteroids in asthma. Thanks, Dr. Israel, for joining us. Hello, Chris, thank you so much. Oops, let's see. There. Chris, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here. And give me just a minute to, um, do you now see my screen in, uh, um, in, do you now see full screen? Perfect. Okay, all right. So it's really, it's really a, a pleasure to um, uh, be here um, to present um, about our study, which was, as Chris mentioned, a successful pragmatic um, primarily remote trial in Black and Latinx population with asthma. And I'm going to talk about the results of the study. And I also want to talk about the challenges and successes um, that this study represented in terms of a different paradigm of doing research, which at least was, an, was new for me and I think um, represents the way of the future in terms of thinking about how we um, involve different stakeholders in research. Um, in terms of my conflicts, um, I consult for many companies um, that produce um, different interventions in asthma. In particular, um, I consult for AstraZeneca, which produces um, the inhaled corticosteroid for Motorol known as Symbacort, um, and also is producing a combined short-acting beta agonist inhaled corticosteroid as well. And so, um, and those, I think those are um, just relevant in terms of people understanding my conflicts of interest. Um, so let me start with laying a little bit of the background about why we ended up studying um, and introducing an intervention um, for black and Latinx patients um, with asthma. 
So the, the burden of disease for asthma in black and Latinx subjects is really, um, and patients, um, the, those groups really bear a disproportionate burden of asthma morbidity. They have two times the rates of emergency room visits and asthma-related deaths relative to whites. And Puerto Ricans have four times the asthma-related deaths rel rate relative to whites. Um, and the efforts to reduce this, these burdens um, have generally been mostly unsuccessful. And the successful ones tend to be very labor intensive, involving um, um, physician extenders, uh, reaching out, constantly reaching out to patients, and generally are not supportable by most healthcare systems in terms of trying to do this. Um, in, in that context, um, we know that inhaled corticosteroids are really the cornerstone of asthma controller therapy. They reduce exacerbations, they reduce inflammation. Um, but we also know that at least the way we had been prescribing those medications, uh, which was regular use of inhaled corticosteroids in all but the mildest patients with asthma, that adherence to those, um, to those interventions is quite low. When one looks at, at prescription refills for patients who have been given um, a prescription for regular inhaled corticosteroids, on average, the refills are 25% in a year, 25% of what they should be. So patients are not complying or adhering um, to those regimens. Data show that as needed inhaled corticosteroid use guided by asthma symptoms or triggered by beta agonists can improve asthma outcomes. And I'm gonna show you the ones related to short acting beta agonists. But one thing that one needs to think about is that there's um, a reason that this works besides just the pharmacology. Um, this is a patient empowering strategy, um, allowing patients to say, I have control of my disease, I use my um, inhalers when I need them, which is what they do and why they prefer their short acting beta agonists um, is really a, a game changer in terms of patient's approach to disease. Um, one can explain that type of intervention um, much more easily to patients, which ends up being a lower burden on providers. Um, and we have gotten positive feedback from patient partners about that type of intervention. So I'm gonna start by reviewing, uh, going back to 2005, this is a um, NIH study which uh, Homer Boucher and I led, um, which is called IMPACT, um, in which we looked at this concept for, the, for one of the first times about using as needed inhaled corticosteroids. Um, and this was a study in mild asthmatics, and we studied patients for a year. We took patients with um, mild to, um, intermittent to mild, mild, asthma, mild asthma, and um, we randomized them to either inhale budesonide 200 micrograms twice a day, um, or to inhale placebo plus oral zephyrlucas, which is leukotriene antagonist, or inhale placebo plus oral placebo, and, all, and the patients were taught to initiate short courses of oral or inhaled corticosteroids based on a symptom-based action plan. Um, and what we found after a year of this was that, um, remember we, and as opposed to the 25% adherence that one sees um, in the real world. Um, in this study, um, we encouraged and monitored adherence. We had 90% adherence, so that there were 47 weeks of budesonide in the use in the group that was randomized to budesonide alone. There was 90% adherence to zephyrlocast, and at the as-needed group um, took budesonide for 75% of 43 episodes where they should have taken it, and that turned out to be one and a quarter weeks a year of inhaled corticosteroid. So dramatically less use of inhaled corticosteroids. One would have thought that as a result of that, there would have been a dramatic difference between the group that was using only one, on average one and a quarter weeks of inhaled corticosteroid versus this group that was using 47 weeks a year of inhaled corticosteroid. Um, and this resulted as in the 1.25 is a 97% reduction in inhaled corticosteroid use. Huh. 
Um, ooh, um, I have to apologize. It seems that the slide that um, showed those results is um, not here. Give me one second to see if, um, if it's still there. Okay, um, apologize for that delay. Um, and this is what, um, what we saw in terms of the um, exacerbation rates. Um, there was a very little difference um, in the rates of exacerbations between the patients who are on inhaled corticosteroids all the time, um, those who are on placebo, and those who are on zafirlicast. The p-value here is 0.45, and it didn't reach a minimally um, important difference. There was also no difference in peak flow, no difference in quality of life instruments. There was a little bit of a difference in symptom-free days, and as one would expect, the monitor of inflammation exhaled nitric oxide was a little bit lower in the patients who took um, they're inhaled corticosteroids all the time, and sputamine sinfuls were a little bit lower as well. But in terms of exacerbations, a 97% reduction in the um, amount of inhaled corticosteroid use um, um, basically produced the same type of control for exacerbations. This was followed by a study by Alberto Poppy in which he used a, um, a preparation that was not available in the United States, but was available um, in South America and Europe, which was a combination albuterol inhaled corticosteroid. And what he did is uh, had patients um, take um, this albuterol inhaled corticosteroid or that was, um, as the medication for them as needed albuterol therapy, um, regular combination therapy or regular um, beclomethasone therapy with as needed combination therapy. Um, so these patients were either taking um, albuterol as needed with which automatically gave them inhaled corticosteroid, taking the albuterol as needed with the automatic inhaled corticosteroid and regular methasone, or um, as needed combination therapy. Um, and, and this is as needed albuterol therapy. And what you can see is that the patients who were taking the as needed combination therapy actually had the least patients with exacerbations as compared to patients who were taking regular bethlemethasone um, or the patients who were taking as needed albuterol therapy. Um, and so this is a significant decrease here um, in terms of the use, um, in terms of the exacerbations as well. Um, and the ICS use was reduced by more than 75% in this triggered group, this group that was using the combined therapy. And in this case, there was no difference in symptom-free days, rescue medication use, or symptom scores between the regular and the triggered. And then the Asthma Clinical Research Network, which had uh, the NIH network that had done the initial impact study, then moved on to moderate patients. So patients with um, more um, with, uh, symptoms where they required regular inhaled corticosteroids. And what they did is they randomized patients to albuterol triggered inhaled corticosteroids. So what they did is, um, or what we did is we took patients and told them, here's your albuterol and here's an inhaled corticosteroid um, canister. Every time you use your albuterol, use your inhaled corticosteroid canister, as well as using your twice a day inhaled corticosteroid, because these were more moderate patients. Um, that was one arm. The other arm was um, using NAPP guidelines. These patients were being seen um, every, every other month um, and using NAPP guidelines to adjust therapy based on symptoms. And the last was adjusting symptoms based on exhaled nitric oxide. Um, and so we called these different arms physician-assisted based adjustment, which was following NAPP guidelines, biomarker-based adjustment, and symptom-based adjustment where the patients adjusted their medications by themselves. Um, and this is, again, the event rates, the rates of exa exacerbations. What you can see is that the highest rates of exacerbations occurred in, um, and these, remember, these patients are being seen every other month, every, every, every other month, um, was in the uh, patients who got the physician-based adjustments. 
the biomarker based adjustments initially were quite effective, but eventually actually also um, did not do as well. And the symptom based adjustments really were the group that did really, really the best. Again, suggesting that this is really an effective strategy, even on top of regular inhaled corticosteroids for whatever, to whatever extent the patients are using the regular inhaled corticosteroids. Um, and this is the yearly rate um, of um, exacerbations, treatment failures, and um, days lost from work or school. The um, black line here is the uh, patient-adjusted, um, what we call PARDIX. Um, and then the other is the enforced NAPP guidelines. And you can see that um, uh, the, ha the hazard, these are all significant. The hazard ratios um, for exacerbations, for rates of treatment failure, and for days lost from work or school were all significantly less in these patients who were using um, the inhaled corticosteroids as needed on top of their regular um, inhaled corticosteroid dose. Um, and that was the basalt study. Um, and there was about 50% less inhaled corticosteroid use in the albuterol triggered um, study group compared with the others. There was no difference in peak flow, symptoms, FEV1, asthma quality of life questionnaire, asthma control questionnaire, or asthma symptom utility index. The biomarker group where, which were targeted to exhaled nitric oxide did have a lower exhaled nitric oxide. Um, oh goodness. Um, um, I'm still missing one of the slides I see. Um, um, so the other piece of this is that, um, as, as many of you know, um, so the, these were studies with Schrodinger and beta agonists. As many of you know, there's been now over the past 10 years, um, a lot of studies using um, fermoterol combined with inhaled corticosteroids. Um, and the reason fermoterol is used is fermoterol is a long-acting beta agonist, as you know, which has a quick onset of action. And so combining fermoterol with an inhaled corticosteroid and telling patients to take um, twice a day fermoterol, patients who have moderate to moderate severe asthma, um, take twice a day fermoterol and use the fermoterol inhaled corticosteroid rather, and use the um, in fermoterol inhaled corticosteroid as reliever therapy, which is called SMART therapy, simultaneous maintenance and reliever therapy. Um, or combined maintenance and reliever therapy um, has been shown to reduce exacerbations as well. Um, and that's actually been recommended now by the, um, by the GINA and the National Asthma Education Prevention uh, Program uh, recommendations for patients with moderate to severe asthma. Um, the, um, the, the problem with that therapy is that the studies were done um, in patients who um, did not use nebulizers. So patients using nebulizers were excluded from the studies of SMART. And the reason that was done, which made sense, was that SMART therapy doesn't activate um, unless you're using an inhaler. And if you're going ahead and using a nebulizer, and if you use a nebulizer as, your, um, as, a, as a fairly important part of your lever therapy, then that doesn't activate. And so all the patients um, who were entered into SMART studies were patients who um, agreed not to use a nebulizer or in, and were not using a nebulizer. Um, the other thing is that the... Um, even though the NAPP recommends ICS for Motorol, ICS for Motorol is not approved by the FDA for as needed use. Matter of fact, there is a specific caution against using it for reliever therapy. And thus many insurances will not cover prescriptions written for PRN and won't cover ICS for Motorol, the extra ICS for Motorol inhaler every month. Um, the other piece is that this requires you to switch over the therapy to ICS for Motorol. Um, and the last piece is that in most of the studies where um, smart therapy has been used, it reduces exacerbations, but doesn't appear to have a significant effect on symptoms or quality of life um, um, or an inferior effect on symptoms of quality of life compared to 
regular use of inhaled corticosteroids. The other piece of this is it hasn't been tested in black and Latinx patients, um, wasn't studied in patients with nebulizers, um, and as we talked about, hasn't been FDA approved. So um, considering the problem um, for black and Latinx patients with this disproportionate burden and the difficulty of, um, of um, actually reducing that burden, um, based on discussions with patients, providers, and advocacy groups, and based on the results we had with the basalt study and the impact study and the others, um, we hypothesized that a patient, what we call the patient-centered, patient-activated, reliever-triggered inhaled corticosteroid strategy, um, where patients were instructed to take one puff of inhaled corticosteroid every time they used their beta agonist, and five puffs when they used the nebulizer without changing their underlying therapy would improve asthma outcomes um, that are important to patients and the healthcare system. And in particular, um, we were thinking about exacerbations. So we designed the PREPARE study. Um, and that study was a randomized one-to-one -one open label pragmatic clinical trial. Um, so this is um, not an efficacy trial, but an effectiveness trial um, where um, this is open label and administered um, in the, we had 17 uh, practices, more than half of them were primary care practices um, who recruited patients who were black and Latinx adults. Um, and we ended up recruiting 1,201 black and Latinx adults with moderate to severe persistent asthma um, who were on inhaled corticosteroids. And they either had an asthma control test of less than 20. So remember um, a value of less than 20 is considered poor control or inadequate control on the asthma control test, or they'd had an exacerbation in the past year. It was a very pragmatic population. Um, it was a self-identified um, asthma, self-identified um, black or Hispanic Latinx population. The doctor diagnosis of asthma was um, based on the clinician um, diagnosis. There were no criteria of having to have had a bronchodilator study or a methylcholine challenge. The only exclu major exclusion was if you had a doctor diagnosis of COPD with a history of smoking. Um, so we didn't want to include patients with a um, major COPD. There was no limit on the smoking history or the current sm smoking. So we enrolled current smokers. Again, 25% of asthmatic smoke, and they are excluded from the non-pragmatic trials. Um, and there were no um, limitations on comorbidities. Um, you could have heart failure. You could have other, other things. Again, a very pragmatic population. You couldn't have, obviously, other lung diseases since we um, we're testing an, an intervention that was supposed to be effective for, for asthma, not for um, other lung diseases. Um, so a very, very wide population. Um, and it was a pragmatic patient-centered intervention. It was a one clinic um, study visit. Um, so you were randomized to PARDIX, so patient, the patient-activated reliever-triggered inhaled corticosteroid, or continued with your usual care. Um, and um, that was done at one visit. And you want all the patients, both the patients who were randomized to um, PARDIX and those with continued usual care, watched a video on optimal asthma care, talking about um, what to do, how to avoid triggers, how to use their medications, um, inhaler technique. Both groups had that. And the PARDIX patients were given an inhaled corticosteroid inhaler, QVAR, um, which was um, graciously provided by Teva. Um, and they watched a video um, on using the PARDIX strategy in addition to their underlying therapy. So they were told not to change their underlying therapy, but to um, use the inhaled corticosteroid every time they use their inhaler and five times when they use their nebulizer. Um, they're instructed to take this and as said, without changing the underlying therapy, they could get a refill by calling a 1-800 number. 
Um, and that was it in terms of um, our touching the patients for the, for the study itself. Um, the patients were followed for 15 months with remote follow-up. Um, and so the, the remote follow-up was monthly surveyed all the patients. The surveys were administered either through um, their phone, um, on, on their phone through instant messaging, um, on the web if they chose to, um, by telephone interview if they chose to, or by snail mail if they chose to as well. Um, the last patient were, was enrolled in March 2020, just as COVID hit, um, and they were followed through the pandemic um, because we were doing this all remotely. We had no interruption of any kind uh, in terms of this, and we were lucky enough to enroll our last patient just as the pandemic um, uh, loomed. So this kind of shows you um, what, what I talked about. 1,201 participants, 603 African-American Blacks, 598 Hispanic Latinos. They were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to Partics plus usual care um, or to usual care. They had baseline data collected and um, were instructed. Um, they had a phone call um, to just make sure they understood what was going on and then followed up um, with these questionnaires. Both groups got the um, questionnaires once a month through the way they chose online, paper, or phone. The primary outcome we chose was one that we, again, um, as I'll talk about, developed with our, um, and our stakeholders um, and was felt to be one of the most important for, for the stakeholders was the rate of asthma exacerbations per year. Um, and those were, turned, <coughs> um, were picked up by these monthly surveys of the patients asking them whether they had an exacerbation that required them to use prednisone or required them to go to the emergency room or be hospitalized. Um, and when patients indicated that they had had such an event, um, we then um, verified and adjudicated that event. Um, we actually had permission to go to their medical records, um, went to their medical records um, and um, ver verified the event um, so that we knew that we were dealing with true asthma exacerbations. We had additional pre-specified outcomes. Um, there was a monthly asthma control test done in the surveys. There's an asthma symptom utility index, and we asked patients about days lost from work, school, or their usual activities. We had exploratory post-hack outcomes, which included emergency room visits, hospitalizations, and medication use. Um, so procedurally, we recruited 1,201 subjects, as I mentioned. Um, these are all um, self-identified African-American, Black, or Hispanic, Latinx patients. We had an astounding um, survey completion rate. Um, through the 15 months of the study, we had 90% survey completion. Um, we had only 4% data loss. Um, the patients um, really bought into this. Um, they were being paid for filling out their surveys, um, and this seemed to work very well. Um, we also had a um, lottery for people to fill out their surveys where they'd um, um, win in, in lottery. And um, as many of you know, um, there's also a study which I'm going to show you were published um, this year um, in April in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, titled Reliever Triggered Inhaled Glucocorticoids in Black and Latinx Adults with Asthma. So what did our population look like? Um, this is the breakdown of the, um, uh, the patients um, by their the total and the Partics plus usual care versus usual care. Um, what you can see is that half of these patients were African-American black, um, half of them were Hispanic Latinx. That was um, on purpose, that's the way we enrolled. Um, on average, they were um, older. Um, they were about 48 years uh, of age. 
Um, they were predominantly female, about 80 to 85% of the population was female. Um, the BMI was in the obese range. Um, 70%, almost 70% of the patients had a BMI greater than 30. Um, 11 to 12% of the population were current smokers. 9% were, um, 8 to 9% were former smokers. And um, more than a quarter um, in each group reported that they were still in a current smoking environment where others around them were smoking. Um, as, as I mentioned to you, these patients needed to be on inhaled corticosteroid. Um, about a quarter of them were on inhaled corticosteroid with, um, without a long-acting beta agonist. Um, about three quarters were on um, inhaled corticosteroid lava. Um, and about 3% were on a biologic. Um, this is the interesting part. Um, so we didn't look for patients who were nebulizer users, but in this population, um, almost 70% of the patients reported that they used the nebulizer. Um, and that the um, and that they use um, on average they use nebulizer two to three times a week um, for relief of symptoms. Um, three quarters of these patients had one or more com comorbid conditions. Um, the exhaled nitric oxide, which we measured at the beginning of the study, um, thirty percent of them had an exhaled nitric oxide greater than thirty. Um, we also measured absolute eosinophils at the beginning of the study or looked at that historically. Um, and a quarter of these had absolute eosinophils greater than 300. About 70% of the patients, although and, and one of the ways to get in was having an asthma exacerbation or to be poorly controlled, 70% um, of the patients had had an asthma exacerbation in the last year. So this is a population, if you look at the regular population actually across, including mild asthmatics, remember these weren't necessarily mild, um, about 35% of asthmatics having exacerbation in the last year, um, but this was a, um, a more moderate severe population. The mean asthma control test was 15, so these patients were highly impacted, and more than half of them had a um, asthma control test of 15 or less, which as you know, represents very poor control. Um, the asthma symptom utility index was correspondingly high, um, and the um, patient's health questionnaire, um, and, um, um, a quarter of these patients had um, evidence of depression on the patient health questionnaire. So what did we see? Um, what we saw was that if the, in, the all, in almost all of these slides that I'm gonna show you, the red lines represent the patients who are on usual care, the blue lines represent the patients who are on part explicitual care. Um, and these are the rates of the asthma exacerbations over the 15 months. Um, and what you can see is that there's a um, significant difference here um, between the blue line and the red line, the blue being the partix, this is exacerbations per year, this is the months following randomization. And you can see the hazard ratio is 0.846. And this um, corresponded to a 0.13 exacerbations per year. Um, and you might say 0.13 exacerbations per year, is that really a meaningful reduction in exacerbations? So just to put this in context for SMART, um, so this reduction is equal to or greater than the reduction in severe asthma exacerbations seen in the SMART studies cited by NEPP. The NEPP cited 10 studies in making its recommendation that um, moderate and moderate severe patients be put on SMART therapy. Um, if you looked at those 10 studies and um, weighted them by the number of patients, um, and you and looked at the average reduction in the exacerbations, it was 0.12 per patient per year. Um, so we achieved an effect um, that was equivalent to the average um, effect for SMART and the studies that were used to make the, make the recommendation. Interestingly, 
Um, the, remember, we did not restrict ourselves, um, both in, in terms of entry criteria, um, the way SMART did. Um, if we looked at the 70% of patients who had had an exacerbation in the past year, um, which were in our study, then our reduction relative to the usual care would have been 0.21 exacerbations per patient per year, almost double the reduction in the average seen in SMART. What did we see in terms of asthma control? Um, so this is the asthma control test change from baseline. Um, and the red represents the um, usual care group. The blue represents the um, Partix group. What you can see is that there is, um, and this is a effect of being in a study and maybe seeing the videos on how to, how to control your asthma. Um, you can see that both groups had an improvement in their asthma control, um, but the a difference here was a one, uh, almost one point on the asthma control test. Um, um, and actually this was significant, even though this is showing um, a, a potential, oh, this was significant. It was a 0.9 with the confidence interval being 0.5 to 1.2. The p-value here was less than 0.01 um, for the difference here between the patients who were treated with the um, intermittent, um, the patient activated reliever triggered inhaled corticosteroid. How about the um, quality of life and work uh, loss from school? So the asthma symptom utility index, um, a um, better asthma symptom utility index, um, a high, um, an improvement in the asthma symptom utility index of 0.09 is considered a minimally important difference. You can see that that was achieved by the group um, that was treated with Partix as opposed to the group that was treated with usual care. Um, and the difference here was significant as well. In terms of days lost from work or school, um, there was a an annual difference of um, three days with a p-value of 0.013. Not a large difference, but again, um, a reduction in days lost from work or school um, for patients who are working. What's really actually um, very interesting as well is, well, you can say, okay, you gave these patients um, extra inhaled corticosteroid. Um, they just used a lot of extra inhaled corticosteroid. They used a lot more controller therapy. And how much controller therapy did they use? Um, so this actually shows you um, what um, actually happened in the intervention group, the PARDIX group versus the usual care group. Um, the um, the crosshatch here that's kind of in the um, beige and um, orange um, is the amount of inhaled corticosteroid or, or actually um, controller therapy used in the background by these patients. So you can see in the usual care group, um, they reported to us um, how often they were renewing their in, um, inhaled corticosteroid or their inhaled corticosteroid LABA. Um, and they, on average, um, used um, 7.8 canisters, about eight canisters a year um, for, for their medications. What we see in the um, PARDIX group is they actually ended up, compared to the control group, the usual care group, they ended up reducing their background um, uh, their background controller therapy to 5.4. We dispensed on average 2.2, um, which was uh, the, um, um, when we counted this uh, kind of against ourselves, um, we dispensed an inhaled corticosteroid and we had to do a changeover as well. So we, uh, every time we did this, we actually counted it. So that was an extra 2.2. And then interestingly enough, the patients really only renewed on average 1.3 canisters a year. Um, so the total here is 8.9 of, um, of controller therapy versus 7.8. So this is 1.1 extra canisters of controller therapy in the year. So if you look at the SMART studies, um, in the SMART studies, how much extra um, 
controller therapy, how much extra ICS for Motorol was used in SMART studies when they compared the people who were using regular ICS for Motorol to the ICS for Motorol plus as needed ICS for Motorol. So and if you look at those studies, again, the same 10 studies where you have the data, the average extra use of ICS for Motorol was four and a half canisters a year um, compared to the control group. Um, in contrast, what happens with SMART, PARDIX ended up, uh, PARDIX also ended up reducing reliever therapy. So we asked patients how many times they um, refilled their quick reliever inhaler and how many times, how many months they used the nebulizer. Um, the red is the PARDIX group the, um, and the blue is the usual care. You can see that there is a reduction in the amount of um, inhaler refills. Um, this was significant as well. It was a about a 20% reduction. And even more interestingly, um, for these patients, two thirds of use who are using nebulizers, they reported a, um, um, a one third reduction in the number of months that they use a nebulizer. There were two, um, almost two months less use of, of reporting using a nebulizer during that month um, in the PARDIX intervention. So they were using, um, um, so, so the, this was a reduction in the nebulizer use. There was a numerical, but not a statistically significant, it just misses, um, reduction in emergency room and usual care visits. Um, this is the intervention group and the usual care group, the number of ED and urgent care visits um, um, per, <clears throat> um, per patient per year. Um, there's a trend toward fewer hospitalizations. Um, there were 70 hospital for asthma. There were 70 hospitalizations for asthma in the intervention group, 84 in the usual care group. Um, and the serious adverse events um, were reduced. Um, the uh, solid lines here are asthma-related serious adverse events. The um, uh, broken lines here are non-asthma serious adverse-related ad ad adverse events. Um, so both of these were um, were reduced as well. Um, and then if we looked at them and, and did a heterogeneity analysis, so looking at um, the, um, this is a forest plot. So this is the asthma, the ratio of asthma exacerbations between the enhanced usual care and the PARDIX um, patients. Um, if you're to the right here, um, if the dot is to the right, it means that there was a slightly, that there's a better um, outcome with the usual care. If the dot is to the left, um, it's a better outcome with the uh, PARDIX. The, um, uh, the x-axis here is um, uh, a ratio uh, uh, down to 0 0.5, a 50% reduction and in between. Um, and here's the study itself. You can see that actually it looked like the, this was a little bit more effective in the African-American blacks. Um, it was um, um, more effective in non-smokers than in former or current smokers. Um, it didn't differ by exhaled nitric oxide. Um, uh, whether you did a cutoff of 20 or whether you did a cutoff of 30, although as you got to greater than 30, it looked like it might've been more effective. It didn't differ that much based on eosinophils. Um, it didn't differ based on whether you um, were internet savvy or not. Um, and we thought it would differ by um, people's um, beliefs about inhaled corticosteroids. Um, so we, we had used a, um, a validated um, questionnaire about patient beliefs about inhaled corticosteroids and medications. Um, and um, it didn't differ versus accepting or not accepting. Um, and um, it didn't differ in terms of depression. Um, we were concerned about health literacy um, and actually found that this actually was even more effective in patients with low health literacy than those in um, patients with high le health literacy. There was not a big difference. Um, there wasn't, it was still, um, it was even more effective in patients who had a high BMI. 
Um, we looked at whether um, there was a difference in if you were using inhaled corticosteroids alone or inhaled corticosteroids and a LABA. Um, if anything, um, we thought maybe inhaled corticosteroids and LABA would not um, be less effective and no. Um, and it didn't vary based on comorbidities either. Um, it did vary on whether you had an exacerbation within the last month or not. Um, as you can see, uh, I'm sorry, in the last year, as you can see, it was most effective for patients who had an exacerbation in the last year, and this was for the outcome of exacerbations. And remember, I pointed out to you that in SMART, to get into the SMART studies, you had to have an exacerbation in the last year. That wasn't what we did. Um, and we used the total um, here. So, um, and that's why I said, if you compared us to SMART, there was actually a large, even larger difference. Um, and then we looked at, um, um, uh, medication adherence, um, and it was effective for all groups, although most effective even for those who were less adherent. Um, and then we looked at um, self-perceived discrimination, and that didn't make any difference at all. Um, so what we found was um, we said we had set in our priority significant interaction value for P less than 0.015, um, and that did look like it varied by exacerbations and by just made it by medical adherence. So in summary, reducing disproportionate burden of disease from asthma and black and Latinx patients has been difficult. In collaboration, I'm going to talk about this with patient partner advisors. We demonstrated that Partix, a patient-activated reliever-triggered inhaled corticosteroid, added to underlying therapy in these patients, um, could be adopted after a one in-person session, reduced asthma exacerbations, improved asthma control, improved quality of life, and reduced late days lost from work or school. Um, the reductions were equal to or greater than relevant SMART trials. It was tested in a broad population without restrictions on asthma phenotypes. It didn't require a change in underlying control or therapy. The total extra inhaled corticosteroid use was 1.1 refills per year, um, which is uh, not a big burden on the healthcare system e economically. It required less controller, extra controller therapy than report with SMART. Remember that was four and a half versus 1.1. And it was tested in populations using rescue nebulizers and it doesn't challenge FDA restrictions um, it, um, and so potentially less problems with insurance. So comparing it to SMART, which I think is the big question I get always asked, so SMART studies nebulizers were not allowed. In Partix, they were. Um, in SMART, you had to have an exacerbation the past year. We took anybody who had an exacerbation or was poorly controlled. In SMART, you have to have bronchodilator entry proved at, um, at entry. We did not require any type of PFTs. Um, and we know that actually the bronchodilator response tends to skew to people who are more inhaled corticosteroid responsive. The mean reduction was, was equivalent. The reduction, if we'd restricted ourselves to um, patients in exacerbation, would have been 0.22 versus a 0.12. Um, the reduction, if we would restrict ourselves to bronchodilators, we don't know since we didn't do PFTs. Um, and the results for the SMART studies have shown variable results in asthma control. We had an improvement in asthma control. And as I mentioned, the extra controller use was four and a half with SMART, 1.1 with um, this. So um, I told you we had a 90% response rate, a 4% data loss. Um, that's astounding for any type of study. And remember, we had one point of contact with these patients. So how did we get there? Um, we um, involved stakeholder groups um, who were actively participating in our study. They were part of our executive committee that met monthly to review the what was done in the study and make uh, changes. Um, we had 17 patient partner advisors. Eight of them were African-American Black, nine were Hispanic Latino. We had translator for the Hispanic Latinx patients who did, who did in whom Spanish wasn't their primary language. We had 19 psycho investigators. As I said, most of these were primary care. 
We had six expert scientific advisors, which met quarterly to review us. We had patient advocacy stakeholders. We had health policy stakeholders, and we had professional society stakeholders as well, all of which participated in an executive committee in which we met with regularly. Um, the executive committee included patient partner representatives, scientific stakeholder representative, the health policy stakeholder, the healthcare representative, professional society representative, um, me, the PI, our, um, and the other PIs, the project director and the engagement manager, um, and the asthma educator, um, and the PCORI project officer. Um, we, and just based on the, on the feedback from these groups, as we organized and designed the study, um, we anticipated issues. Um, we anticipated there would be difficulty recruiting the populations. There's a, a distrust of um, research studies, as many of you know. Um, and so our patient advisors um, said, these are the things you need to do. You need to create um, patient material of people who look and talk like us. So our videos and our brochures um, were actually done with um, with patients who were representatives of these groups. The videos were done by um, people who were representatives of, um, of these groups. The patient advisors pointed out that you needed to use practices that treat us as opposed to research, research practices. So we involved practices that many of whom, this is the first time they'd ever done a research study. They kept on talking about simplifying the messages and we kept on having to um, um, simplify and shorten our messaging. Um, they advised us, for instance, that our first set of messaging didn't use Spanish vernacular. Um, there was a continued push for adequate payment for survey completion. Um, there was um, a, also a push for immediate payment for survey completion. So the way we set it up was as soon as you completed um, your survey online, um, you had a credit card that was actually um, credited um, with the uh, with, with the payments. Um, they said that we needed to be in constant communication. So we actually had appreciation notes from the investigators for Asthma Awareness Month and around Thanksgiving and the holidays. Um, and they kept on telling us that the first three rules of the study were KISS, keep it simple, stupid. Um, and, um, and the patient advisors reviewed all of our patient-facing material and made very significant changes. Um, what are unanticipated issues that came up? So when we first started the study, we had not really thought a lot about the nebulizer problem because we actually, um, that was going below the radar. And the um, scientific advisor said, what about nebulizers? Um, don't you think you're gonna have a lot of patients who are using nebulizers? And when we started looking at, um, when we did our um, Vanguard study, we realized we there was a lot of nebulizer use. And so we uh, then looked at the equivalent of what a, um, what a nebulizer is, in most cases, it's considered somewhere between five and eight puffs of an inhaler. And so we asked patients to use five puffs of their inhaled corticosteroids. And as we mentioned, two thirds of our patients ended up reporting nebulizer use. We also did a Vanguard study um, and we found other unanticipated problems. So we thought that patients would be familiar with the, with the words rescue and maintenance. Um, we found that less than half, and actually almost three quarters of the patients, had no idea what we were talking about when we were talking about rescue and maintenance inhaler. Um, so I, um, what we decided there for was that enrollment, the study coordinators were asked what the patients called their short-acting beta agonist. And when we sent them their surveys, when we sent them their monthly um, requests, we put that information into the data collection system. And when we said, how many, so when we asked them, okay, in the past month, how often did you have to use your rescue? We didn't say rescue. We said whatever they called their inhaler. If they called it the blue inhaler, some patients gave the inhalers names, Bob and Alice. Um, 
we would put in how often did you use Bob and how often did you use Alice? Um, so we, we actually met patients where they were. Um, we included all the inhaled corticosteroid names on the inhaled corticosteroid questionnaires. Um, and we put better explanations in the instructional videos based on these found findings. We found that we, in the Vanguard study, we weren't getting timely responses um, within two weeks. Um, and so we changed the reimbursements for time to fill out the survey. Um, we put a monetary prize incentive for completing in the survey within seven days. Um, we changed our access to the online survey so that you didn't have to re-enter um, your information and your passcode. Um, it was incorporated and we sent out reminders um, based on the patient um, responses. Um, and we also provided participant ability to how, how they could fill out their monthly surveys. Um, two thirds did online completion, um, a quarter wanted a phone online completion, a very small number wanted mail and 1% um, would switch back and forth. Um, and we ended up with um, um, almost 10,000 attempts to follow up with 900 patients, 75% of the cohort um, on 6,000 surveys. Um, we found that um, um, we that patients understood the concept of inhaled corticosteroids with their SABA, but they didn't actually understand the concept of using it on a one-to-one -one basis. Again, this is all in our Vanguard, um, the pilot. And so we reinforced that information on the video showing it specifically. We showed patients using one puff and one puff and one puff with two puffs. Um, and we had a teach back with the study coordinator explaining that. Um, and um, we found when we did our Vanguard, we thought we were gonna use dose counters and we found the patients didn't understand how to report their dose counter or the refills because they didn't understand the question. Um, then again, this is going to the KISP thing. We eliminated the dose counter strategy, revised the question to ask if and when they switched to a new inhaler. We pre-populated the question with the name they called the inhaler, as I mentioned, and we pre-populated with the date that they last filled out the survey so that they understood what, what, this, what the time frame was. Patients complained the survey was too long. We um, reluctantly eliminated several survey instruments and we shortened some of the non-standardized questionnaires. Um, and there was um, initially in the, um, in the Vanguard, there was a low self-reported use of nebulizer intubation. We spoke to our patient partners. They pointed out that patients may not have an inhaled corticosteroid inhaler when they use a neb. So we provided an additional inhaled corticosteroid and pouch to put in the nebulizer. Um, that actually you know, worked against us in terms of the calculation um, for the amount of inhaled corticosteroid because they didn't necessarily use all this, but we ended up counting each time we did this. We updated the video with in-depth instruction. We, caught, we changed the word nebulizer to the machine um, and we gave out magnets with information on using this. Um, we also had challenges with our patient partners, um, so who turned out to be very valuable, but the majority, um, um, 10 out of, um, or 16 out of 17 had no research background. Um, most of the research team and stakeholders from professional groups, including myself, had not worked with patients as advisors. Um, and um, we had two Spanish speaking only patient stakeholders who were representatives. Um, we addressed this by um, employing a dedicated professional engagement personnel as part of the operations team for the advisors. Um, we had one full-time bilingual engagement project manager. We had a part-time asthma educator who worked in the community with patient advisors. Um, and we had a consultant nurse leader of patient experience and patient advisory council, patient advisory councils. Um, we um, actually had sessions with the patient partners. Remember, these are not the subjects, but these are the patient partner advisors, um, educating them on study design principles and statistics. So that when we discussed the different things we were doing, 
um, we ended up, uh, they had a better understanding. We compensated them at the same level of an hourly rate as the consultants. Um, we continuously involved them in decisions from the study design to the analysis. Um, they all participated, all the patient advisors um, were invited to the yearly in-person board meetings, not during COVID obviously. Um, and we had a pre-meeting during those board meetings um, for the patient partners where we explained the major issues, told them what they were gonna see and allowed them to, um, to ask questions in a non-threatening environment. Um, and the, at the meetings, the patient partners were embedded in each table and in each breakout group. Um, so they were clear participants. And the feedback, we surveyed them yearly, the feedback from them was that they felt very included and very respected. Um, so um, this was a very, in our, from our point of view, this is a very successful study. We already have, um, I actually haven't updated this. Um, um, we we um, already have seven publications related to this, but actually now have 10 publications. We've published, pub published a paper looking at the um, differences in the different socioeconomic groups and the different um, groups groups as well based on their um, on their self-reported background. We published a study that has been cited multiple times because as I mentioned, we, um, we entered our last patient um, just prior to COVID. And so we were able to follow our patients uninterrupted through COVID. We were able to look at the difference in asthma exacerbations um, between the patients who were enrolled um, before COVID versus those who were participating during COVID. And we're able to show that there was actually um, a almost a 50% reduction in exacerbations in the patients during the COVID period. Um, and that that was actually um, there was a greater reduction in patients who used to work outside the home, um, suggesting that um, there may have been reductions in, um, in that part of this may have been pushed by viral exposures um, and um, other exposures. Um, we're uh, working on other, other manuscripts. We're looking at um, the effects of structural racism um, and whether they have effects on the effectiveness of, of our therapies as well. Um, we're um, in, uh, in press for a study that looked at the use of non-standard names. Um, and we ended up showing that non-standard names Patients who use non-standard names for their inhalers are more likely to have significantly more likely um, to have 50% greater rate of exacerbations. So this is an easy way to potentially identify patients with greater risk, just saying to them, what do you call this inhaler? What do you call this inhaler? And if they don't call them by their names or, um, or by rescue um, and controller, um, those are patients who are at greater risk for exacerbations, a very easy and quick test um, at this. I want to acknowledge my co-investigators, um, Juan Carlos Cadet, Wilson Pace, Jennifer Carroll, Ann Fulbrighi, Lulin Shea, and Maureen Fagan, and Frank Rockhope, the Brigham staff who, um, who coordinated Nancy Marr, the project director, Paulina Hernandez, um, our bilingual uh, patient um, uh, advocate and uh, liaison, and Jean Cruz, um, and um, our patient partner stakeholders, our patient advocacy stakeholders, our professional society stakeholders, the study site investigators at these 19 sites, the study site staff, our health policy experts, our coordinators from the American Academy of Family Physicians, and our expert scientific advisors. And um, I'm happy to take questions and thanks for the opportunity to present. Dr. Israel, thank you so much. Uh, uh, what a terrific uh, game changer, I would say, uh, uh, research. And the brilliance of the study design and implementation is just uh, quite striking. Thank you for those kind words. Thank you. I um, 
can, can you uh, give us some of the details that thinking about how would practitioners implement this approach? How did you link the use of the inhaled uh, steroid with the uh, short-acting beta agonist? At one point, you mentioned a pouch. Uh, yes. How did you make it easy for them to be linked in use? So, so that that's a good question. So, um, we did give people who went to parts. We gave them we gave them a pouch that would hold um, the two inhalers um, at once. Um, we the kind of in the kind of informal feedback was that they didn't end up using them much, but we thought it was a good idea. <laughs> um, and as I mentioned, um, for the um, patients with the nebulizer, we gave them a nebulizer to put with their nebulizer. Um, we had no way of knowing whether they did or didn't do that, um, but uh, that's what we ended up doing. So if they're not using a pouch, is it your guess that when people go out with their uh, Saba that they also throw their beclomethasone inhaler into their pocket or purse and use them together? Is that how it happens? Yeah, yes, I, th I think that's, that's what happens. Um, and, you know, so, um, to, you know, and the, we realized that there was a, um, you know, as you, as you spoke to patients um, and you speak to patients who use a lot of their inhalers, um, the, we weren't covering the entire um, uh, the entire universe of it because patients say, well, I have an inhaler at home, I have an inhaler at work, I have an inhaler in the glove compartment. Um, and so, you know, the, the, that coverage um, is, is what it is. It was a pragmatic study. Um, and we end up getting effects that we kind of exceeded our expectations um, in, in terms of this. So, um, so that kind of, um, I think what we, what we said to patients is, you know, um, keep this with whatever you use most, right? And, and was there um, information about compliance with this method other than uh, frequency of refills? Yeah, so, so um, um, we asked patients what they did. So we, we have the information on uh, what they did. Um, so um, about 70% uh, of the um, patients said that they were doing this uh, most of the time or all the time. So a, a fairly good, you know, most of the time, all the time. What we did find also was that there was variable um, compliance with the puff for puff and variable compliance with the five puffs. Um, so um, I, as I recall about, I think 50 to 60% of the patients said they were doing it puff for puff. Um, and um, on average, the um, in terms of nebulizers, people were saying that they were using it using about three puffs um, when they did a, a nebulizer. So there wasn't um, you know perfect adherence to, um, to to this. But again, it was a pragmatic study, and it's kind of you know okay, what happens in the real world when you say to patients do this? Does it make a difference? And I think you know what we found is that it makes a difference. However, they did it. There was a, a question submitted about why choose the increased number of puffs for nebulizer versus MDI use. So, so that was based on the studies that were done. And Chris, you were, in, in, I think, involved in some of these studies as well. We're um, um, looking at what the kind of um, equivalent of a neb, neb is to a meter dose inhaler. And um, most of the data suggests that five to eight puffs of an inhaler um, is the equivalent meter dose inhaler. As a matter of fact, as I try to wean patients from, from a NEB, because I find that um, it, it, it reduces quality of life if patients feel that they have to, be, oh my God, I have to run home to go use my nebulizer. I say to them, 
um, if you're going to use a NEB, um, why don't you try using five puffs or six puffs of your meter dose inhaler um, rather than running home to go use your NEB? Um, so that's why we did that. Uh, along the same lines, can you comment about the choice of it, it, it was beclomethasone 80 micrograms per puff? Is that what it was? Yes, I'm sorry I didn't mention that. It was QVAR 80. And as I said, that was um, and Teva graciously provided the um, QVAR. They also provided the pharmacy services um, for the uh, um, for this as well. And I, I actually failed to mention that um, Circassia donated the exhaled nitric oxide machines um, um, as well um, in terms of support of the study. Right. So uh, thinking about implementation uh, in the real world, uh, uh, is there any reason to think that any other inhaled steroid might not be just as effective or, and or, you know, there are higher dose per puff inhaled steroids? Would you think that they could be used with less than a requisition of five puffs per nebulizer treatment. Great, great question. So, so um, the 80, the beclomethasone 80 is actually the highest dose of QVAR. Um, and that is um, pretty equivalent to the highest dose of any of the other inhaled corticosteroids. Um, so I don't think you can get much more punch out of using an, another inhaled corticosteroid. Um, I don't see a reason to believe that um, the, the, these results would differ much um, from other inhaled corticosteroids. I think if you use a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid, then I think that you might actually uh, have different results. But I, you know, I, I think again, in terms of trying to think about implementation, um, I think the use of any of the highest dose inhaled corticosteroids would be a reasonable alternative here. And you know, um, thank you for um, um, giving me a lead in because we we are actually we just applied for an implementation grant where we are going to see whether we can actually um, put this into healthcare systems. Um, we're proposing doing this at several different types of healthcare systems. Um, one, um, a large healthcare system in Northern California with 3 million um, patients, um, several, several federally qualified healthcare systems as well, um, to try to see what the barriers are for implementation um, as, as well. Very interesting. There was another question, Elliot, about that group of patients who seem um, poor perceivers, as they call them, insensitive to the presence of airflow obstruction. And there was concern that, that might, uh, stra this strategy might uh, not work in those who were not quite as aware that they are developing an asthma exacerbation. So th that's a good question. And I so what, what I want to point out is that we did not, um, did not did not take away the background therapy. So all these patients were patients who were um, at least prescribed background inhaled corticosteroid and ICS LABA. And you saw three quarters of them were, have been prescribed in ICS LABA. So these patients were using regular therapy. To what extent? You know, I, again, we um, you know we weren't enforcing anything here, um, but they were all patients who were um, um, were getting background therapy. And so we're, we're not. You know, I, I, we haven't tested this, although actually an impact. We did do that in the milder patients um, where you don't use any background therapy at all. So I, I don't think that, um, you know, um, that this is a recipe for saying, take away your background therapy. Um, although what you did see was patients were clearly feeling better. And what you saw is that they ended up renewing their background therapy less. Right, so that, that was the difference there. Um, it was a significant difference in terms of the uh, number of times patients actually ended up um, calling for canisters or their background therapy, whether it was an ICS-LABA or an ICS. So, um, so that happened kind of naturally. 
um, again, in, in, a, in a real world study where patients were doing what they were doing and we were just kind of trying asking them what they were doing. Great. Well, we've reached the end of the hour. And so I want to thank you again for, uh, you know, asthma therapy is evolving and you are leading the way as we um, uh, enter this new world. So thank you very much, Dr. Israel. Thank you all for participating. And we look forward to you joining us at our next Asthma Grand Rounds. Have a great day. Thank you day. so much.